if you have your Bibles, go with me over to 1 Kings chapter number 12. We're going to jump right into it today. We've been in this collection that we started last week of talks that's called God's Plan. Everybody say God's Plan. Uh, not Drake's song, but this is uh, actually the originator of God's plan uh, is God. It came, comes right out of the, the word of God. And, uh, and just for sake of review, uh, let's talk about last week a little bit. Last week, we talked about God's will, God's plan. When you, if you were to search uh, God's plan in a commentary, it would, you'd, you'd pull up three different categories related to God's will. I don't know if you remember these last week. And, and by the way, if you didn't get a chance to hear last weekend, if you weren't here, maybe you're out of town on business or trip or one of those things. Uh, you can go to our podcast. We have a podcast on iTunes. Just look up Sozo Church and uh, you'll be able to find it there. But we talked about God's will and God's plan in these three categories. The first one was the providential will of God. How many remember that? The providential will of God. The providential will of God. This is what that is. That is, that is those things that God's going to do regardless. It's like the sovereign will of God. Maybe you've heard that phrase. The providential will of God are the things that God's going to do no matter what. The things that God's going to do no matter what. The second one was this, was the moral will of God. That is, uh, those are the, the do's and don'ts outlined in the word of God, the scriptures. You know, like, uh, you don't really have to pray, God, is it your will for me to sleep with my girlfriend? Like, God's pretty much, he's outlined that one in scripture. It's like, God, you wouldn't buy a car unless you test drove it first, you know? Like, you don't even have to work that out with God. Like, he's already established that one in scripture. It's called the moral will of God, right? But then the third one is the one that you and I are, are usually pretty pretty concerned with. And the the thing that we want to know is the personal will of God, the providential will of God, or the things that are outlined in scripture that God's going to do no matter what, you know, things like send his son, Jesus. And one day when he's going to return, he's going to do that no matter what. We don't have to pray and ask him to do it. He's going to do it. The moral will of God are things he's already established in scripture. It's the standards by which his people are called to live. But the personal will of God is stuff like this, like, God, should I take that job? Should I quit this job? God, should I break up with this person? Or God, should I marry this person? God, should I take, should I step out in this venture and try this thing and, and just step out and start this company or start this business or, or start this initiative? God, should I partner up with this business partner? Uh, God, what do you want me to do? What is your plan for my life? That's the personal will of God. And what we said is this, the more familiar you are with the providential will of God and the more surrendered you are to the moral will of God or the more obedient you are to the moral will of God, the easier it is to discover the personal will of God for your life. Let me illustrate it like this. I, I play golf. Any golfers in the house? Okay, good. I'm the only one. Uh, I'm a terrible golfer, okay? I, I am one of the worst golfers known to the golfing history of golf, right? I'm just, I'm terrible. Uh, I played Monday, and uh, I was telling a buddy of mine earlier, I played Monday. I, I went to the golf course, and I, I, I bought uh, two sleeves of golf ball. The sleeve has got three balls in it. I bought, so I bought six golf balls, okay? I go out and I start playing and after nine holes, you get to something called the turn where you're back at the clubhouse. I had to go back in and buy another six balls. That's how great I am, okay? Because when you're playing golf, you know, it's like there's there's something called a fairway. It's this, this stretch going towards a hole. And on the left and on the right, there's something called boundaries. And you can actually hit the ball out of bounds. And when you go out of bounds, it gets really rough there. There's water and sand and, and brush and tossed. I mean, it's just, the, the, it's going to get lost. You're going to get lost in the weeds if you go out of bounds. But they put the boundaries there as really like guardrails. It's almost like golfers, like bumper kind of things when you're bowling, right? It's like stay within bounds. And if you stay within bounds, if you stay down this path, you're going to keep going straight and you're going to, you're going to make your shot. Here's, here's why I'm telling you that. 
because God's word acts as the, the boundary markers for you and I and the way that we live and the decisions that we make. God's providential will and his moral will are the standards or the boundary lines. And what I've discovered is anytime you make a decision, a personal decision that is, that is out of bounds from what God's word has already told us to do, it's probably going to be a mess. You're going to get deep in the weeds. You're probably going to hate it, and it's going to make golf miserable. Let me tell you this. Monday, I lived out of bounds, and it was the worst, most miserable day of golf of my life. I think I maybe, maybe even threw one or two golf clubs, okay? Don't tell anybody. I know I'm a pastor, but uh, Monday, I was not a pastor. I'm not a pastor on Mondays, okay, when I play golf. I'm, I'm not. I'm a normal civilian. But here, here's the phrase. We kind of came up with this thesis statement last week, and I think this really sums up the entire, uh, the entire uh, message last week. It's this. It's surrender to the known will of God paves the way to discover the unknown will of God. Surrender or obedience to the known will of God, things that you know God wants you to do, the areas where, you, where God's already told you to live in, in morality or with your finances or, or with your relationships, uh, to forgive people, not to harbor bitterness, or to be generous with your resources and not be self-centered and selfish and live for yourself, or, or to put God first in your finances through tithing, or, or to live a sacrificial life, or to serve one another out of reverence for Christ. These are all scriptures that I'm quoting. Forgive one another, serve one another, honor one another. These are the things that God has already told us to do. It's the known will of God. The more surrendered we are to the known will of God, it paves the way to discovery of the unknown will of God. That is this. The more you live out what God has already told you to do, here's what happens. You actually begin to receive the wisdom of God, and and now it becomes instinctive and intuitive. When when you're not doing what God's already told you to do, here's what you'll do. You'll make decisions based on your own intuition and based on your own instinct. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is wicked. Who can trust it? Here's what that means. You and I, we can't trust our gut. You know, people say, go with your gut. No, that's the worst thing ever. When I go with my gut, I gain weight. (laughs) Don't go with your gut. Don't go with what feels right. The Bible says there's a way that seems right, that feels right. There's, that, there's an intuition that feels like it's going to be right, but in the end, it leads to destruction. But the more surrendered we are to the known will of God, it paves the way to discovery of the unknown will of God. And so the, the instruction last week was this, and I'm going to check on you, see how you're doing with your homework, okay? My son, whenever he goes to school, they check on his homework, so I'm going to check your homework, okay? I told you this, that the place where you're going to discover the, the, uh, the, the providential will of God and the moral will of God is where? It is in God's word. It's in, God, it's in scripture. And it's important that you spend time in God's word because as you do that and you get in God's word, God's word gets inside of you and it begins to shift and change and transform you because Hebrews 4 says that it is living and is active. And here's the best way I can illustrate that. I am from the South. I've told you this before. In the South, they do something called, um, they, they uh, what is it called? They, they do like pickling where they pickle things. You know, it's like in, in Jennifer's grandparents' house, they, you'd open up this cabinet and there was mason jars. You know, those, those clear mason jars everywhere. This is like a typical picture of the South, right? And there are like pickles everywhere. Sweet and spicy pickles, jalapeno pickles, uh, you know, cinnamon pickles. I don't know. It's like all kinds of crazy different flavors for pickles. Now here's what I discovered being from the South. I asked him one, one time, I said, how do you make that? What is the pickling process? I want to know what is that? And here's what they told me. They said, you know what? A pickle is actually a cucumber. That right there blew my mind. Okay. That blew my mind, right? A pickle 
is a cucumber that is unreal. That is unreal. I can't believe it. They said, yeah, what you do is you take a, you take a cucumber and you, you put it inside of this environment called a mason jar filled with, with vinegar and all these flavors and all this stuff. And you just let it sit. That's all it does. It waits. It sits. The cucumber is in the juice pickling. And over a long period of time, eventually what it's been sitting in will actually change the structure and the properties of the cucumber into a pickle. And then you get a delicious pickle. Okay, here's what I'm telling you. When you and I, even though you may not even know this, when you and I get our lives into the word of God and we begin to get the word of God in us, it's the pickling process as Southern as that sounds where God begins to change the nature and the character and the intuition and the instinct of you. And then when you have to make decisions, it just becomes so much easier. Like my nature's been changed. My character's been changed. The substance of who I am, it's been changed. I no longer operate on the wisdom of this world. I have the wisdom of God. Why? Because you've been in the word of God. So here's your homework. Remember last week, spend time in God's word. How are you doing with that? With scale from one to 10, don't yell it out. Scale from one to 10. One being you didn't pick up your Bible at all this week. 10 being you crushed it. Okay. You crushed it. Like you could be preaching today. You crushed it so good. Where are you at? One to 10. Where'd you score? Okay. Take out the seven. Seven's a neutral number. Okay. Seven's like you didn't do good. You didn't do bad. I was a seven. Right. Take out the seven. Where'd you, where'd you fall? One to 10. If you're a four, let me ask you this question. What cost you the six? If you're an eight, what cost you the two? What is it that, that pulled you away? Was it busyness? Was it distraction? What was it that kept you from getting in God's word? Because I'm telling you this, the more in tune you are with the written word of God, the more obedient and surrendered you are to the written word of God and the revealed known will of God, I'm telling you, the easier it's going to be to figure out the unknown will of God. So today, here, here's the thing. Now, what do you do when you got to make a quick decision? What do you, gotta, what do, you do whenever it's like, I got to make a decision, Jason, by like Tuesday and I don't have time to be flipping through my Bible and downloading and, and soaking in the, you know, the biblical pickle juice, as weird as that sounds, right? I, I don't have time for the pickling process, Jason. I need to make a decision right now. I got to accept the job. I got to get back to him by Thursday. I got to tell him if I'm going to renew my lease by Friday. I got to know what I need to do. Jason, can you give me like a fast track? Can you help me there? Listen, I'm glad you asked because that's what I'm going to do today. Okay. Now, now I don't want you to use this as an excuse not to get in God's word, but I'm just going to try to help a couple brothers and sisters out today. Can somebody say amen? amen. If you have your Bibles, first Kings chapter 12 will be the principle that we're going to extract from this particular passage of scripture. I love it. And at surface value, at face value, some of you may be like, is that it? Like, that's the principle you're going to give us today. And yes, it, it is one of the most rudimentary and like fundamental basic principles that I think that you and I could gain when it comes to, or live out whenever it comes to God's will and God's plan for our life. But what I've discovered is, as I've had, had conversations and counseling sessions with people over the last 17 years of my life being in ministry, it's amazing how many times I ask people a certain line of questions to find out that they were not Im implementing this principle, this timeless principle that works for anyone, Christian and non-Christian. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor or where you came from. This principle is a principle, just like gravity kind of works for everybody. This principle can work for anyone, even if you don't even believe in God. This is a good principle, and this will really help you when it comes to figuring out what it is that you're supposed to do in the areas of the decisions you're going to have to make. Now, here's the passage, 1 Kings 12. I'm going to give you a little bit of backdrop on the passage, so it'll make a little bit more sense. 
before we read it. Um, during this period of time, you got to know that uh, God's people were the Israelites, the children of Israel, right? These Jew, the Jewish people of God. And, um, and God gave them a king when they asked for a king. The first king was King Saul. He wasn't a good king. He was a bad king. Kind of screwed a lot of things up. Second king that came after him was King David. David was an amazing king. David was a worshiper. David loved God with all of his heart. Matter of fact, the Bible said he was a man after God's own heart. Then after David, David's son Solomon took over as king. They say that Solomon, that he's the wisest person that has ever lived. He's the wisest man. Although you see tail end of his life, he began to make some very poor decisions. One of which is he married a lot of different women. Uh, Okay, let me just tell you this right now. It's hard enough to be married to one woman. I'm kidding. It's hard enough to be married to one person. This guy had like a thousand wives. I mean, like, talk about a bad day. Could you imagine trying to make decisions and you had like a thousand different, I mean, it was, it was bad. And so Solomon, although the beginning of his life started out really good, I mean, he was the guy that built, built the temple of God, built the palace, helped build the city of God. I mean, Solomon was an amazing king, but he, he kind of started living out of bounds, outside of the boundaries of God's moral standard. God sent this prophetic word to the ancient world. He began to live out of bounds and into the weeds. And because of that, God sent this prophetic word to Solomon, to the king. He said, Solomon, because, because I love you and I love my people, um, but also because you have gone outside of the bounds, there, there are going to be consequences for you living outside of the boundaries of, of, of my word and my direction. And because of that, the kingdom is going to be stripped away from, from your family partially. He, see, God had a commitment to David. He said, David, you'll all, th- th- this kingdom will always be underneath your family. And so God had to keep his commitment to David, but now Solomon is kind of, he's messed things up. And so God says, there's going to be a consequence that you're going to feel, but I'm going to stay faithful and committed to David because David was faithful and committed to me. And Solomon, because of this decision, God says, I'm going to come in and, and half of the kingdom is going to be stripped from you. And the, the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel is going to be split in half, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And so he gives this prophetic word, but he says, here's the thing, Solomon, um, it's not going to happen. This consequence is not going to happen while you're still alive. I'm going to wait till after you die. And then, uh, and then that, that, that'll, that'll kind of roll out. That plan will roll out. So then what you have is this guy, Jeroboam, wanted to be king. And so he was kind of fighting and gunning for that position as king. And Solomon knew it. So Solomon ran him out of town and he goes and he, his son over in Egypt. And then finally, Solomon dies. And his son, Rehoboam, that's two different kind of close names, but his son, Rehoboam, with an R, he was in line to take over as the the leader of the nation of Israel, as the king. And so now Solomon has died. Rehoboam is about to be crowned king. So all of Israel comes together at this little town called Shechem, which was a sacred, sacred town where a lot of times God would do, do things where it would be establishing kings and leaders would take place at Shechem. And so all of the people come together. It's kind of like that day when they're swearing in the president, right? Everyone comes together, and Rehoboam is right there. All the people are right there, and they make a request. And I'm going to read the request, because when they make this request, this is the first big decision that Rehoboam has to make. And if he makes a good one, things are going to go good. If he makes a bad one, things are going to go bad. And this is the moment that this young leader, he has to make a decision. Everybody with me? So here's where we're at. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse... Number one says this, Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel had gone there to make him what? To make him king. 
When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still over in Egypt, where he had fled from the king. It says, he returned also to Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam, and this is what they said. Watch, here's the request. Your father put a heavy yoke on us, King Solomon. He put a heavy yoke on us. But now, lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. What are they saying? They're saying, hey, listen, your, your dad, he was a tough king. He, he, he had, like, the taxation was, there's lots of taxes, high, high taxes. And because he was building all these projects, you know, building new roads, building the city, building the temple, building the palace, we were the labor force. Your dad, I mean, there was a heavy burden when your dad was a king. They're letting the burden eclipse the benefits. Because I can tell you this, the people of God, they benefited from Solomon's leadership. But they're focusing on the burden. And they said, your dad, he burdened us. And it was such a challenge. It was so hard. You lighten the load and we're going to follow you. We're going to serve you. And it's right here in this moment. This doesn't look like a big decision. It looks like a no-brainer. Like, duh, Rehoboam, just lighten the load. They're going to be your servants. But a king would have felt this type of pressure and these type of emotions. If I lighten the load and I, I grant their request, they're going to think I'm weak. And they're going to think I'm not a strong leader. Next thing you know, they're going to be making all these different requests and demands, and I'm going to become a slave to their requests and their demands. If I'm weak and I say, yeah, yeah, I'm going to give you what you want, what are they going to ask me for next week and next month and next year? I'm not going to be able to accomplish anything as a king. I'm not going to be able to build anything. I'm not going to be able to advance anything. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm light on them, if I lighten the load and I'm easy on them, this is actually not going to work good for me. On the other hand, if I'm hard on them, and, and, and I'm burdening them, maybe they're not going to follow me. Maybe they're not going to be my servant. He's in the decision dilemma in this moment. He's got all these emotions. He's got emotions of fear, emotions of worry, emotions of anxiety. Have you ever felt that before when you got to make a decision? Anxiety, fear, stress. You know, whenever we did this, the spiritual survey for Easter and we said, what are the things that you want to hear about? The first one was, what's God's will for my life? You know what the second one was? How do I deal with stress? I mean, we feel that when you got to make a decision, you feel stressed, you feel anxious, you can't sleep at night, your stomach's like, you know, it's just like bad, right? The decision dilemma, what do you do? And what you see, the first thing that he does is absolutely brilliant. It's, it's one of the things like this isn't even the principle I wanted to talk to you about. But if you just get this one, you could actually say, check, please. And you could walk out after this. For some of you, this would be a game changer for you right now. Look what he does. Very first thing, Rehoboam answered, go away for three days. And then come back to me. So the people went away. Some of you would be amazed if you would just stop making knee-jerk reaction decisions and impulsive decisions in the moment. Emotional decisions you will always regret. I think that probably one of the greatest instigators and catalysts to you and I making decisions that we look back on and say, gosh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. You know what it is? It's when we get in the moment and we're at the dealership and we get the pressure put on us and we're like, I'll buy the car. It's like, no, go away for three days. Sign the lease, say yes to the dress, whatever. Like, I don't know if you could really, will you marry me? Go away for three days. How would that work? But honestly, think about it. Think about how many times in your life you were in a moment and you made a purchase, you made a decision, Friday night, had a couple extra drinks, went home with someone, made a decision. Think about how many times you and I in our life, in a moment, 
when the emotions are high and there's a fog in the air, make decisions that we regret. Think about that. We can make those decisions in moments where we look back at our life and we go, God, I wish I wouldn't have made that mistake. And truthfully, honestly, this is what I believe, that if we would just start making decisions by doing this, slow, before, before you make the purchase, slow down. Before you, you say yes to that date, slow down. I'm working against the brother. Somebody today is like, man, come on. I brought this girl. This was actually our first date here at church. <laughs> just slow down. Before you sign the lease, slow down. Before you sign the contract, slow down. Before you say yes to the partner that's proposing to, to, to help you, slow down. Slow down. That's, that's one of the first things that, that he did, which was great. But watch this, in the waiting. See, there's wisdom in waiting. But in the waiting, look what he does. He does something genius in the three days. It says, verse 6, Then, in those three days, King Rehoboam consulted the elders, the elders, who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. These are sages. These are older, wiser men. These are men that have walk through a few things. These are men that have had to balance some, some pretty big budgets. These are men that had to make some wartime, battle time decisions. These are men that, man, they've seen a lot of pain. They've seen a lot of heartache. They've seen life's lost. They've seen families broken and torn apart. They've seen a lot in those days. Have you ever noticed how, how the older you get, a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times, the wiser you become. Because you get this perspective where you can begin to look back over life and see all the different changes in life and all the different dynamics and all the different things. And you've actually probably made some poor decisions yourself that you regret. And you've made some good decisions that that you're proud of. And the older you get, a lot of times you look back and I just found you got a little bit more wisdom. So he does a good thing. He says, you know, I'm going to go find the guys that are experienced, that used to serve with my dad. They may be older They may be out of the game now. They may not be sitting on the board of the Kings anymore. They may not be in a leadership role. They may be retired and sitting on a front porch somewhere, but I think they still have something to offer. It goes on. Pause. Let me just say this. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Some of you in here, maybe you're a little bit older. I want to tell you this, that you have so much to offer our church. Some of you that you've had moments in your life where you thought, I'm I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm older now and I don't really have much to offer. You have so much to offer a next generation and a young, a set of young leaders. And I'm thankful that if you're here and you're a little bit older than some of the young people wearing denim in here, I'm thankful for you that you're in this house because we need you. We need your wisdom. So Rehoboam, he consults with the elders. Um, and this is what they say. Or he asks him, he says, how would you advise me to answer these people? He asked, look at the wisdom. They replied, if today you will be a servant, look at how many times it says this. If if today you'll be a servant to these people and you will serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. You see that? He says, if you'll lead them by serving them, things are going to go good for you, son. I'm telling you, leadership is, 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 is simply being a servant. If you're too big to serve, you're too small to lead. If serving is beneath you, then leading is beyond you. Right here in this moment, he says, son, you just need to serve the people. Listen, trust us. From our experience, we look back over the last 40, 50, 60 years being in leadership. Trust me. 
You just need to serve the people, love the people, honor the people. If you'll be good to the people, the people are going to be good to you. Doesn't that sound like such amazing wisdom? It's not the wisdom of this world, I can tell you that. Some of you, you work in companies and you know that that's not the wisdom that comes from the top. But this is the wisdom of heaven. If you'll serve the people, then it's going to go good for you. That was a good decision that he made. But then it goes on and look what it says. Verse number eight, but Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders. He rejected it. And watch what it is, what he does. And consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. What a contrast. You got this older group of guys that have been there, done that, got the leadership t-shirt, have balanced massive budgets, have made tough decisions, have seen a lot in their life. They've got the wisdom. They've got the counsel. They've got the insight. And here's more importantly, they have nothing to lose and nothing to gain. And now you got this younger group of guys that are serving Rehoboam. They've been rolling with Rehoboam for a long time. They've grown up with him. They've reaped all the benefits of being friends with the king's son. They got a lot to gain and a lot to lose based on the decision that Rehoboam is about to make. And so Rehoboam, he goes to these kids and he says, hey guys, by the way, they're about probably about 30 years old, 40 years old. I'm 36, so I realize I'm dumb, okay? I got it, I realize it. I need people in my life. I need uh, elders in my life. But he goes to these young guys, he says, hey, what do you guys think I should do? Look at this. Says this. He says, um, he asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, Lighten the yoke your father put on us. The young men who had grown up with him replied. This is what they said in verse 10. These people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now you go tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Wow, that sounds really wise, guys. It's great advice there. Here's what they're saying. Go and flex your muscles, Rehoboam. Go and lead them by controlling them. Leadership through control never works. Never works. Being a dictator, demanding, putting pressure on people, it never works. It's one of the, the, the oldest tricks in the book. It just never, it never creates loyal people and healthy relationships. To lead people out of your position rather than out of influence never works. This was their, their wisdom to him. So what does he do? Verse 12, three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. Verse 12, as the king had said, watch this, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men. And this is what he said. My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I'll scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word of the Lord. Now listen, I don't fully understand the last verse, but what I see is this, is that this was God's plan, his providential will for this to happen. But remember, we talked about it last week. There's these times when what God's gonna do, no matter what his providential will, he gives us free will and our personal decision that we can make to integrate with what he is doing. And right here, in the integration of these two things, Rehoboam makes a very unwise and bad decision. By going to a group of people that have zero experience, zero wisdom, they make a foolish bit of advice and counsel to him, and bad voices bring bad choices. 
I think you could sum it up. I like sticky statements. I think you could sum up this entire thing with this one statement, and I make it portable so that you can, you can walk with it on Monday and on Tuesday and on Friday. Listen to me. Wise voices equal wise choices. That's it. That's not rocket science, right? Wise voices equal wise choices. The Bible teaches this throughout it. One of the primary places that it teaches about seeking sages and looking for those that are experienced and seasoned that can speak into our life and help us when the emotions are high when we're making decisions and the fog is just everywhere and we just can't make a good decision or maybe we're, we're having to make a decision that's outside of our pay grade, a little bit higher than our competency level. The Bible, through wisdom literature like Proverbs, it tells us what to do. Look at what it says in Proverbs 12. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man or woman is he or she who listens to counsel. Proverbs 11 says, where there is no wise, intelligent guidance, the people fall and go off course like a ship without a helm. But in the abundance of wise and godly counselors, there is what? There is victory. Proverbs 13 says, arrogance, pride, that causes nothing but trouble thinking you know what's best and you're going to kind of make a decision on your own, that causes nothing but trouble. It is, a wise, it is wiser to ask for what? For advice. Proverbs 19, 20 says this, if you listen to advice and are willing to learn. See, a lot of times I think we're, we're just not willing to learn. We think we know it all. But it says, if you're willing to learn, if you'll be a student and not an expert, listen to this, one day you will be wise. If you'll just be a student, one day you'll be wise. That is that you'll know how to make wise decisions. Proverbs 24, it's better to be wise than strong. I love this one. It's better to be wise than strong. Intelligence outranks muscle any day. By the way, this is my excuse for not working out. Shut up. (laughs) I'm going to get a t-shirt made that says, better to have brains and muscles. Kidding. Strategic planning is the key to warfare. Watch this. To win, you you need good counsel. To win in your marriage, you need good counsel. To win in your finances, you need good counsel. To win at your, at your, in your job, you need good counsel. You need those things. Why? Because it's in the counsel of many, the Bible says. In the counsel of the right people, there is safety to make the right decisions. Because a lot of times, when we're left to our own devices, we'll make decisions that are clouded by desperation and by lack of discernment. Listen, desperation clouds discernment. When you don't know what to do, what do you do? Don't do anything other than seek wise, godly counsel. So the question becomes, like, what do we do? Who do we choose? Who do we choose to be those people? Because some of you, you're like, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it. I, I could have sat this Sunday out because I already kind of do this. Well, well, let's break this down for a moment and find out if you actually are implementing this in the right way. Who do you choose? Proverbs, 20, uh, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 26 says this. The righteous, that is followers of Jesus, the righteous... Choose their friends carefully. Why? But the way of the wicked leads them astray. You got to choose intentionally and carefully because the people around you, they will actually lead you into a place where either you'll regret or you'll rejoice that you're in that place. You got to choose intentionally. You got to choose wisely. Proverbs chapter 12 verse 26 says, the godly, they give good advice to their friends. You'll know if you have a bad friend if they give you bad advice all the time. The godly, they give good advice to their friends. The wicked lead them astray. Listen, tips for asking the right person, or the right people and the right questions. I'm going to give them to you. I want you to write these down. I'm going to, I'm going to cruise through these uh, a little fast, but uh, take a picture with your phone. 
Uh, they'll leave it up on the screen for just a moment. They'll build these out. But look at this. How do you choose the right people? I'm going to give you this based on the text and based on my own personal experience. The right people. Number one, choose someone who has nothing to lose by telling you the truth. See, these young guys, they had a lot to lose. Rehoboam's friends, they had a lot to lose. The older guys, they're, they're retired. They're sitting on a front porch somewhere. They got nothing to lose. They just want him to win. You need to have people in your life that have nothing to lose from the decisions you make, nothing to benefit from the decisions you make, and they can be objective and you can give them full context to the decision you're trying to make, and then you can ask them the right questions, and then because they have nothing to lose, they have nothing to gain, they just love you, they want what's best for you, they can speak truth into your life. You need people that are like a scale. Scales don't lie. You step on it and it's like, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. They don't lie. They're, they're a standard, and they're just speaking truth. You need, you need scales in your life. You need some people in your life that will weigh the circumstances, weigh the, weigh the conditions, weigh the outcomes, and in light of their past experiences and collective wisdom, they will speak truth knowing that you need to hear this. You need people that will speak truth in your life that have nothing to lose. I think about this guy that called me this past week. He's an old friend of mine. Um, I used to be on staff with him at a church. He's got a big decision to make if he's going to stay on staff at this church or come off staff and seek another position. But he knew he needed to call someone that has kind of been there, walk through that, that has that experience in their life, someone that loves him and that has nothing to lose or gain based on the decision they're going to make. So he called me and said, hey, what do you think I should do? And so together I asked him questions and we talked about it and he's going to make a wise, informed decision based on the counsel of someone that he sought after that has nothing to lose and nothing to gain that will speak the truth. Here's the second one is this. You need to choose someone. This is so important. Choose someone who is where you want to be in life. If you need marriage counsel, I'm telling you, don't just go to work and walk in there and be like, man, you know what, Bob, listen to this. This is what my wife did. I'm telling you what, my wife came home. I think I ought to just, I ought to just not go home tonight and just go to the pub for a little while. And Bob says, that's what I do. <laughs> what? Bob, how's your marriage? If your name's Bob, I'm sorry. It's not picking on you. Okay? <laughs> Teresa's husband's name's Bob. I always pick on Teresa. I thought about that after I said it. Bob's a good man. Why would you ever ask financial advice or somebody that's struggling every single week to pay their bills? Why would we ever ask somebody that can't stay committed to one church, hey, what church should I go to? Why would we ever ask somebody, hey, tell me, I, I mean, I could just preach this. I just need to keep moving. I need to keep moving on. Keep going. Keep going. I, I think of, I think of uh, Sean Nepstad. He's a local pastor here in the Bay Area. He, he, he spent about 10 years plowing in the Bay Area, a church, and they could not get any momentum. Finally, God did something, and they made some structural changes, and all of a sudden, at Easter, they had 10,000 people at their church at Easter here in the Bay Area. So you know what I do? I call him. I'm like, hey, I want to make sure. What would you do in this situation? You've been there before. You, you've, you, you've been pastoring for a long time. What, what, are you, what would you do? How should I handle this? I'm telling you, you've got to have people that are where you're at in, in, in the area of marriage and relationships and finances. i got another pastor. I'll be with him this week, Pastor Chris Hodges. He's my pastor. A few times a year, I'll just spend two days when I learn. I'm out of days with them, and I'll just ask tons of questions. I go with questions because I want to learn. I'm not asking some pastor, 
that is just struggling just to get by. I'm not asking some, some dad that can't even pull the, his life together and lead his family. I'm not asking, I love him, I pray for him, I bless him, but I want to find somebody that is, that is already where I want to be, that is already, already gone before me, that has already pioneered a way, that has already paved the way and say, I want to learn. Can you please help me here? That's what I want for my life. That's what you got to want for your life. Find somebody that is farther along than where you are. Here's the third one is this. Choose to ask more than one person if possible. Rehoboam asked quite a few people. I, I would submit to you that, that you, need to, you need to have a, 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 a collection of people that are wise, godly people, and you need to go to them and ask them individually. You know, ask them a set of questions I'll give you in a moment. Ask them and try to, try to hear from God through them, because God will use people to speak to us, but then find the consensus of those people. Find the commonality between what they're saying there. And God will use those people to speak. But let me, let me just encourage with this. Go, try to find more than just one person, but be careful that you don't find too many people. Because the more people you get speaking, the more volume coming at you, it will muddy the water. It will make the decision-making process even harder if you get too many people. Too many voices equal just too many options. Too many options make the decision get even harder. I would encourage you to have at least three, three to five people that are in your corner, that you can contact, that you can call at any moment say, i got a decision I need to make. Can I process this with you? And invite them into the process. There's your homework. Here's your homework for you the next week or so. Find about three people if you don't already have them. Let me ask you this question. Who are the three people? Who are the three people that you have right now? Who are the three people that are, that are farther along than you in that area or in your life that you can go to, that you have access to, that can help you process the plan of God for your life. Here's the fourth one for you right here. Choose someone you know and someone you don't know if possible. Choose, choose someone you know and someone you don't know. I don't mean go up to some random person on the street and be like, hey, what would you do if you were me if your wife acted like this? Don't do that. That's dumb, okay? Here's what I mean. I, I, a lot of times I'll be at a conference, uh, like a pastor's conference or a leadership gathering, and there's someone that's there that maybe I don't have a personal relationship with, uh, but I respect them and I, I respect the path of their leadership, kind of the, what they've built, what, where they're at in life. And I'll try to see if I can get a little access to them. And I'll just say, hey, listen, I, I have, could I get a few moments of your time? And I humble myself. I don't act like I'm say, hey, I'm trying to process this disaster that's figured it out. But I humble myself and I come to them as a student and say, hey, I'm trying to process this decision. What would you do in this situation? How do you think I should handle this? And I'll process it with them. I'll also find other people that know me really well because they may know things that the person that doesn't know me knows and that may actually inform the decision. So I think it's important that you could, if possible, find people that know you and don't know you when you got to make some of those decisions. And uh, here's the last one for you right here when you're choosing people. Choose to approach these conversations sensitive to the fact that God may use them to speak to you. Now listen to me. Don't preload the conversation. For instance, don't be like, let's just use let's just use Jeffrey as an example. He's my wise counsel. Hey Jeffrey, I, I want to meet with you this Tuesday. I have a big decision I need to make. I want you to be praying, Jeffrey. I think God's going to use you to, to tell me what I need to do. Don't do that. Don't preload it. Don't put the pressure on him. Just say, Hey Jeffrey, um, I, I got a I got something I'd like to talk to you about. I got a big decision, and I really respect your wisdom. I, I think you're a person that's really wise. You got good counsel. And you know me really well. So what, do you have some time you can meet together? And then you just pray about it. Say, God, here's your preload. God, if you want to use Jeffrey to speak into my life through the wisdom and experience that he has, I'm open to it. 
Use him to speak to me, Lord. And you approach it, you approach the conversation with sensitivity that God, he uses people to speak. How many of you in here, by a show of hands, I never know when we do this, by a show of hands, God has used someone before, not in an audible voice, that'd be weird, but in a way where you just feel like, man, God's speaking to me. How many of you in here, you'd say, God's used somebody in your life to help guide you and direct you in a good decision. See, God does that. God likes to speak in the context of community, in the context of relationship. He likes to use one another. God does He doesn't just speak through people like me. He's, he speaks through people like you. That's why community is so important. That's why small groups are so important. I'm telling you, and the decisions that I've had to make in my life, I don't know where I'd be without my small group. I remember being a young man, and I was trying to figure out, was I supposed to marry this brown-headed girl with brown eyes? She was fine, but I didn't know if she was the one. And I remember talking to my small group, Mac Duvall, Lance LeBlanc, uh, who else? Charles Young. I remember talking Adam Bro. I remember talking to these guys saying, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I like her. She's pretty hot. I think she loves God. I mean, she wants to do missions. I want to do church stuff. I think, I think, I think. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of girls that are out there. There's a lot of pretty girls, but I think she could be the one. There's a lot of options. They all looked at me. It was individually and then collectively, corporately, all together. They said, are you an idiot? Marry the girl. Thank God for the wisdom of the community that I had set myself in. I would have made a terrible decision. Kept my options open. Married some crazy woman. Said she got a crazy man. Hey, you must not have had a small group. Gosh, she didn't have a small group. That's proof. Get you a small group. I got to hurry up. Let me, let me give you, can I just give you the, the questions? I'll just, I'll shoot them out to you really quick. I'm going to give you the questions. Here's the first question. Here's what you should ask them. Ask the person this when you, when you meet with them. Are there any of the options that I'm considering that are outside of the boundaries of scripture? Because God will never tell you to do something that's out, that's, that contradicts his standards of his word. He'll never do it. Never. He's never done it in the history of history. He's never done it. He's not going to do it. He will always speak to you in line with his word. His will is aligned with his word. So you ask that question. Is there anything that I'm considering? Here's my options. Is, are there any of these options? Are they like out of line with God's word? They, they don't line up with scripture? And I believe if you have godly counsel, they're going to say to you, yeah, I mean, all of those are pretty good options, but that one right there, I don't think that's, I don't think that that, just because of like this scripture and that, like, I think that's, that's probably not an option. That's a good question to ask them. Here's the second one is this. What do you think the wise thing, not the right thing, not the wrong thing, but what's the wise thing for me to do in this situation? See, that's what understanding God's plan for your life, it's about wisdom, making a wise decision. I think immaturity says what's right, what's wrong. Maturity says what's the best, what is wise. What's the wise thing for me to do in this situation? What's the wise thing? In light of your past experience, What's the wise thing for me to do? Here's a great, here's a great uh, statement. Put this statement up there. In light of your past experience, my present circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing for me to do in this situation? In light of your past experiences, my present circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing for me to do? And if you can't remember that, here's the best one. Here's the third one. Hey, what would you do in this situation? I know it seems so rudimentary and fundamental and so basic, but listen, don't do what you think you should do. Leverage the principle of seeking sages and having wise, godly counsel and say, hey, what would you do? 
And at the end of the day, you got to pray and say, God, is that what you'd want me to do? And you got to be obedient. But there's something so powerful about not trusting yourself and trusting the wisdom that God places around you in your life. Here's the primary reason why we don't use this principle. Number one, because we say we don't have someone to ask. If you don't have someone to ask, listen, here's what I'd ask you to do. You should, you should be a part of a small group. And if it's not at our church, you need to find one. You need to find a group of people that you can do life with and that you can call upon to help you when it comes to the decision-making process. Here's the second one, the second reason why we don't do this a lot of times, because of pride. We think that, that you know, because we're mature, because we're wise, because we're intelligent, because I work at this place and I went to this school and I got this degree, I got more degrees than a thermometer because I'm this, 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 that I don't need anyone's help. Listen, there's a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but in the end, it leads to just regret. Don't let pride get the best of you. Pride comes before the fall. Humility, humility, humility. Here's the third reason why. This is the best. A lot of times the reason why we don't seek sages and outside godly counsel is because we already know what we're going to hear. The reason we don't ask them about what we should do with our finances in this situation is because we already know what they're going to tell us. And we don't want to hear it because we don't want to do it. We, we don't ask people, hey, what should I do in the area? Should I break up with this person? Should I marry this person? We don't invite them into the process because we know what they're going to say because they're wise and we're not. We just want what we want and we don't want to do what they're going to tell us. But what I've discovered, you can make inform, around yourself with, with godly wisdom. It'll speak into your situation. You can make informed decisions based on the wisdom of heaven through the experiences of God's people. And you can make some of the best decisions that you will never regret for the rest of your life. Amen. Come on, why don't you bow your heads with me? I'm going to pray for you. Lord, we love you so much. God, I thank you for this word today. Hopefully, you've spoken to some people's hearts today. There's some people that are here today, God, they got some decisions they need to make. They have some decisions in their marriage and their family and their finances, work, their vocation, God. They have decisions they need to make, and they're just wondering, God, what, what is a wise thing for me to do? God, I pray that today they would not be isolated on an island by themselves. Because great leaders, God, we understand this. Great leaders, they don't make their own decisions. They simply own the decisions once they've they've been made with the collective wisdom of the people around them. They get that collective wisdom and then they own the decision once it's been made. God, I pray that we'd be people that seeks your will through seeking godly counsel around us. God, help those today that maybe they don't have, they legitimately do not have anyone in their life that they can call upon. God, my prayer for them is that they would begin to not just wait for those relationships to happen, but they would take the initiative. They would be intentional and they would seek sages. They would seek wisdom and counsel and godly people in their life. They'd seek those relationships. Maybe it starts first with a small group. Speak to them, God, whatever you want to say. Hey, with every head bowed and every eye closed, let me just ask you this today. Maybe say, I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. Today, I want to pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or stand or any of those things. I just want to ask you to do this. If today you say, I don't know Jesus, I don't know God, I'm just, I'm just here, but I want to begin a relationship with Jesus. It's as simple as just praying and asking him to forgive you of your sins, putting your faith and trust in him and beginning to follow him. I want to pray with you. Maybe you can pray a prayer like this. You can do this in your own heart. Jesus, today I just ask you, to forgive me of my sins, to give me a fresh start and a new beginning. Today, I choose to follow you. 
I put my faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.